0: Today's Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. Great to be with you at church this morning. Uh, but really looking forward, two, like Prash and Pippi 11. has said, to seeing you in person next when week. Cephas came uh, to uh, my name is Matt. And it's just a, am... my privilege to be with you. This letter to the churches in Galatia that we are studying as a church together is Paul's earliest letter that we have. It's probably written before 48 AD. And so we're talking about the very early church here. This is probably only you know, 15 years or less. Uh, Since Christ's death and his resurrection that that Paul is writing. And here in this situation that Paul recounts to the Galatians, uh, we're dealing with two of the leaders of the early church. We're dealing with the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. These are the the most prominent leaders in the early church Uh, and they're obviously going to become the, the leaders of this, not just this small new religion in Palestine somewhere, but a, a global phenomenon that, you know, it's the reason we're here today. But these, these two leaders, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, these eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry, these friends in the faith, so to speak, are in full-blown conflict. Listen to what John Stott, the English theologian and pastor, says about this moment reported in Galatians He says, this is without doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face-to-face in open conflict. You can imagine with any startup, with any business, with any group for that matter, um, when the two leaders, the two CEOs, the two founders of a company, if they're in conflict, I mean, I'm sure they're in conflict every day over small things, but if if they go public with their conflict, in the first few years of this organization, especially if they think they're on something good, I mean, that's just not something that he's done, is it? You don't go public, especially when you're pointing out the flaws, fundamental flaws in the other leader, unless you want to lose all the trust of your stakeholders and shareholders. Um, it's just simply not done. And so this is a very serious thing in the life of the early church, further than just being a serious thing. And what adds to its seriousness is Paul says in the very first line, he says, Peter stands condemned. This is no mere kind of verbosity of words. Paul is saying to Peter that Peter is on God's chopping block because of how he's living his life. Such is the seriousness to God of what is going on. And what is the problem? We'll get inside it in some detail in a moment's time. But in verse 14, it says this. It says, When I saw that Peter and his friends were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Note that down. They were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Um, the word here, it's one Greek word. It's where we get our word orthopedics from. Ortho being straight. Orthodontist. Ortho, you know, straight. But, and Peter, Peter, Peter was foot or walking. This is about literally walking straight. Peter is, Paul is saying to Peter, you're not walking straight with the gospel. You're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. A little picture up on your screen of what that might look like. This is about walking straight, not veering off to the left or to the right. Here's the important point from this little passage that Michelle just read to us. God wants his people not just to know about him, not just to understand the gospel, not just to get the gospel, but to live in a way that is marked by it, to be shaped by the gospel, to live in line with the gospel. Not to be hypocritical like Peter, where you you know it, but you don't do it, you don't practice it. Peter stands condemned for doing that. God cares about us living a life in line with the good news. So I want to ask a bunch of things about that idea. What's it mean to live in line with the good news of the gospel? The first question I want to ask is, well, what is the gospel? Good question, isn't it? What is the gospel? It might feel like Groundhog Day. Maybe you've logged on for the last, I don't know how many weeks it's been. It feels like a lot. It's been a lot of weeks. And you come to church every week and you hear gospel, 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 gospel. But remember, Peter, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul are fighting about this, arguing about this, in conflict over this, because you can forget it you can misstep from it you can veer off to the left or the right from it and so because Paul sees the Galatian church veering off to the left or to the right veering off in a different path he reiterates the gospel truth to them now what is what is the gospel what is the good news of the Christian faith that's a good question uh, we had such a great night with the professor, Dr. John Dixon. He's a theologian, but he's also an ancient historian. We had such a good night with him on Tuesday night when we kicked off our Simply Christianity course. Uh, he ran the first session of the course, which is all about right, getting back to the heart of the gospel message. And he started the course by asking this question. Why do most cultures believe in a God? It's true, it's a fact. Over time... Over history, even today, actually, most cultures believe in a god. Why do they do that? He said, "Well, research would suggest it's because people see a rational order behind the universe, uh, and and so because they see a rational order, they think, well, maybe there's a rational being behind the universe." So then he asked, "Can we say more than this?" He said, "Actually, the unique claim of Christianity is that Christianity alone says." That God has revealed himself to us in verifiable history. That's a unique claim. Not only is there is a God, but God's revealed himself to us. And it's verifiable in history, in the life of Jesus Christ. But here's the clincher. And if you haven't done the whole course and you're about to do it, I won't you to switch off. But here's a little spoiler alert. You know, if there is a God, then we all have this sense that he has the right to evaluate our lives. Don 't we? He has the right to judge our lives, and of course, you'd then want to be on the right side of him. you'd want him to be happy with you. I was at a funeral about two weeks ago, and uh, the daughter at the funeral was a doctor in Egyptology. And as I was writing my talk for that uh, funeral, um, I stumbled across this fact. you know we've all learned that when Egyptians mummify their princes and kings um, their organs were removed from their body, right? You know this, the intestines, the liver, the lungs, the stomach, they're all put in, in different jars. But the fact that I came across was that the heart is left inside of the body because Egyptians believed it would be weighed in the afterlife to see whether or not you'd live the good life. You see, even the ancients believed that if there is a God, then he can weigh our lives. He can evaluate our lives. And you want to be found on the right side. And this is where the good news of the Christian message comes in. The Bible says this is in fact true. The Bible says, of course, there is a creator, there is a God, he is your maker. And of course, he can judge and weigh our lives. And in fact, you know, when he judges it and weighs it, uh, you will not like what he finds. But Paul reminds the Galatians, reminds Peter in this moment that there is a way in which to be found right on God's side. He reminds them of the good news of the gospel and he uses this word justified. He uses this word justified. It comes up many times in this text. Um, and it's a, a word that is borrowed from the law courts. It's actually the exact opposite of being condemned. If To be condemned is to be declared guilty. To be justified is to be declared innocent, free from guilt, Paul writes this. This is Galatians 2, verse 15. He says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Yes, he just said the same thing about three times so that we get it. He said, Even the Jews who had the law, that is, they had everything written out that you could ever possibly do to please God. They knew they couldn't be right with God through those things because they knew they couldn't keep them. They were always breaking them. Even the best of them failed. We all failed to God's standard. But Paul says we've found a way to receive God's favor, to have God's favor, because one man kept all the law. He loved God. He loved people perfectly. That's the sum of the law. And he gave his life in place of of yours and mine, if you'll receive it. So that when God weighs your heart, he doesn't find in his hand your heart. He finds Jesus' heart. He finds Jesus' life. And he weighs it. And he finds you righteous. He looks at the faithfulness of Christ, not at your faithfulness. And he counts you in. He counts you apart on God's team, he, he counts you innocent, right with God. That's the gospel. That Jesus has replaced his life in place of yours before God to make you friends with God. It's very important that we're clear about this and that we remember this. This is why we talk about it every week at church. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer of the 16th century, you know, he was around at a time where the church had made uh, religion, some, the Christian religion, something else than the gospel. And he found this verse. He read this verse, and as a result, brought a huge part of the church back to the truth of the gospel, back to the good news of the gospel. And he writes about being justified by faith and not by works of the law. He writes this principal article of Christian doctrine, most necessary it is. Therefore, uh, it, sorry, this article is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it to one another and beat it into our heads continually. More or less, that's what Paul's doing to Peter. That's what Paul's doing to the Galatian church. Perhaps it's what you feel like I'm doing to you this morning. But he had to because Peter, by his actions, was effectively saying something different other than God's good news. By requiring the Gentiles to put on these non-Jews, to put on kind of Jewish customs and all these things that used to make people think they were right with God, he was saying to them, the gospel's not enough. And that's why this is so serious to Paul. Um, and so, so then, let's examine this a little bit. What is gospel living? How do you live in line with the gospel? Peter, unfortunately today, or fortunately for us, is the case study of Paul in this moment. And we see actually, in, in, as Paul Retells this message, we see that actually Peter was living in line with the gospel for a while. And then he veered off course. Let's have a look at this. See, the the gospel is meant to change your life fundamentally. It changes everything about your life. Peter Peter knew this, actually. It was very obvious in in the face of first century Judaism, in, in the face of their culture and practices, that the gospel was going to change how they lived. It was very kind of obvious. Peter had worked this out. See, the Jews had the law, and we've talked about this, and these are kind of um, all the things that made them feel they were right with God. Gave them their identity, separated them off from everybody else. Uh, It makes them God's people. They had the moral codes, like the Ten Commandments. They also had all these other, um, some of them in the Old Testament, some of them not, made up things about how they should live each and every day. Formal and ceremonial customs. Things like circumcision, food laws, things you can and can't eat, kosher, uh, or who you could eat with, who you could associate with, and who you couldn't. Um, and they did these things because it was their way to please God. Peter was a Jew, but he becomes a Christ follower. He believes that nothing justifies him except for faith in Jesus Christ, except for Jesus making him right with God. And so he realizes, well, well, none of this stuff really matters anymore. It, it, it's not important. It, this changes how I live, and in fact, if you read the gospel, the, the gospel of Acts close enough, if you read Acts, if you read the biographical account of the church's life, um, you'll see from kind of beginning to end the disciples, the apostles, figuring this stuff out. We watch Peter's life very closely. In Acts chapter 2, right at the beginning, um, the Holy Spirit has descended on the, the Jews. They're speaking in other languages, in tongues. And, and Peter actually stands up in that moment and he says, this is actually telling us that the promise of God, the good news, is not just for the Jews, but it's for everyone, everyone who is far. His words in Acts 2.39 come up on the screen in a moment. And he basically says, this is for all of you. In other words, it's even for the Gentiles. And then Peter, a couple of chapters on, he receives this vision from God. This vision while he's praying is of a sheet uh, falling from heaven to the earth. And its I guess it's a tablecloth. There's a bunch of animals on there that typically Jews weren't allowed to eat. It was against, it would, it would make them unclean. And God says, or a voice says to him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, certainly not. And, it, and the voice says, what God has made clean, don't you make unclean. And while he's pondering this, we're told, wondering what it means, there's a knock on his front door and there's a, a Gentile, man, a God-fearer, we're told, a guy called Cornelius, who's actually a Roman centurion. And he says, Peter, come to my house. I want you to tell us the good news. Um, And Peter, surprisingly, does. And while he's there, he watches these people come to faith, these non-Jews come to faith. And he says to them, "Uh, I, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I mean, Peter gets this. And he's starting to live his life in line with the gospel. He goes into a a, a non-Jewish house, doesn't he? Peter is even then criticized by the Jewish Christians for mixing with Gentiles. This is before what Paul's writing about in Galatians. And he's criticized by them. And he he just retells the story. He said, I went, I told them the gospel. They received the same Holy Spirit. And he says in Acts 2, um, in acts ten sorry forty five he says, "If God gave the same gift as He gave to us when we believed, who am I to stand in god 's way and And actually, they agreed with him in that moment. And so Peter eats with the gentiles. that's what Paul tells us. He eats with the Gentiles. This is a radical way in which, in his culture, he's living in line with the gospel, and it makes sense, doesn't it? Peter sees that because we 're equal, we only come to God in Christ then these ceremonial laws, these food laws, mixing with people not like me, it doesn't matter. I'm free to do that. There's no second-class citizens in the gospel. There's no race, there's no status. He sees that the gospel makes us all equal, and so he lives in line with that. He eats with people. Now, what we're seeing here, of course, is just something really zoomed in. We're seeing one case study, one example of how the gospel puts out lines as one pastor puts it, puts out lines into our lives, every different area of our life that we can live by a new way to live, a new way to go because the, because these things don't make us right with God but only Jesus does then then our lives change this is just a social implication it's an important one but you can think of others I'm sure you know um, an example would be pride think about this for a moment because the gospel the truth of the gospel says actually all of us fall short of God's glory, all of us deserve God's punishment, we're all on the same page about that, and we only receive friendship with God by his unmerited favor in our lives, then then pride has no place in our life. And so the Christian walks in a new direction. Or maybe generosity, you know, I'm thinking about gift day in the back of my mind here, but You know, the Christian can think, wow, because God's favor to me is generous, undeserved, over the top, never failing. God God doesn't give up on us. His love doesn't fail us. Then you can open your heart and your life, your resources to others, knowing that you'll always be looked after. God's always got your back. The gospel... It puts out lines into our lives that we can live by in, in all different areas. And this, what Paul's talking, is an important social one. But Peter does veer off course, doesn't he? That's what, that's what happens in this passage. Peter does veer off course. Um, Paul writes in verse 12 here, he says, For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision. Uh, Peter goes back to his old life, way of life, his old habits. And by implication, this is why Paul takes it so seriously, Peter is saying the gospel is not enough to this, these people. That's the problem. Peter is saying the gospel is not enough. You're, you are a second class citizen unless you do X, Y, or Z. The gospel is not enough. And that, like Paul will write at the end of this little bit, that would mean Christ died for nothing. Because Christ either means everything to you or he means nothing to you. Now, this is Peter's example in his day, but I think we should just pause very briefly for a moment because it's helpful for us to think about whether we do the same thing. Do we? And we won't do it in our words. We know all the language. We know we're justified by faith. But do we just in our in our actions in our lives, sometimes tell people that the gospel is not enough? Do we sometimes say you need something else? There are all sorts of examples, I think, where we say that justification by works is, or by faith, is not enough. Um, perhaps the most subtle way is, is to think that your preferences are kind of spiritually significant. You know, to moralize your preferences. I'm thinking about this as, you know, I kind of finish up as our missions pastor here, the future of St. Stephen's. Um, what it means is we start looking broader in our community. Um, it's going to be really important to us to potentially let go of some cultural values, some things that we hold on to for the sake of the gospel. Because people might think, oh, they're telling me that I have to live this way in order to be right with God, when actually Christ is enough. You know, I was thinking the demographics of our area, 50% of our area are under the age of 40. But somewhere between 35 and, and 60% of our area were not born in Australia. I, I was, there, I bumped into a person just in the last couple of weeks who came to church here. And uh, they said to me, I'm so relieved to come to a church where I hear hymns. And um and Then she began to dog on her own pastor and her own church for having contemporary music. Now, this, I must admit, was the funeral that we had here where the family chose the the order of service, the the hymns and things. I'm not against either hymns or contemporary songs. Actually, I think depending on what you're trying to achieve, there's value in both. But to turn it into a moral discussion, to to say that my cultural preference is more important than another's, might, you know, and that, that does kind of say my way of faith is more superior to yours, that could be to veer off course from living in the line with the gospel, couldn't it? Peter goes off course. We all go off course. What makes us go off course? That's my third and final question this morning. How do how how do you live in line with it? How do you do it? How do you live in line with the gospel? What pushes us in course off course? What what will keep us on course? Well, notice that Peter was afraid. You see that here? Peter, what pushed him off course wasn't that he didn't know the gospel. He was fearful of these Jewish Christians and what they thought of him. Another way to think about this would be to say that this is about what Peter loves. This is what Peter really wants, what Peter really loves, isn't it? What Peter really wants is respect. He wants approval. He wants people to think highly of him. That's why Martin Luther Said to us, we need to continually beat the gospel into our heads because often, often, you know, we know what to do, but our hearts really want something that and it leads us off course. And Peter has forgotten that where he can find his true love, his true acceptance, of course, is in Jesus. I think this is why he would have find, found Paul's words to him so sharp, so incisive. Um, perhaps. He would have found them stinging at first, but the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Look what Paul says to Peter. And the answer is for all of us here on how we can live in line with the gospel, how we can be truly transformed by it. He says this, he says, and I'll make an emphasis here. I want you to notice something. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul talking to Peter. He's, he's personally referred to himself personally there seven times. Remember, Peter is the one who has a personal relationship. If anyone can claim they had a personal relationship with, with, with Jesus, it's Peter. But Paul here, you know, Peter is the, Peter is the guy who what was called out of his boat, out of his career to follow Jesus. He was called up the mountain by Jesus to see Jesus in all his glory. He, was, he saw, looked Jesus in the eye on the day of his crucifixion. He was reinstated by Peter having breakfast on the beach uh, after his resurrection. And yet Paul says to Peter, Jesus loves me, Peter. Jesus gave his life for me. Paul is, Paul is saying, I know I wasn't there. I know I was on the other team for a while. I was a mainly, partly responsible for crucifying Christ, but I've been brought in by the good news of the gospel. Jesus loves me. He died for me. See, the crucifixion wasn't just some kind of objective fact, some historical fact, some mechanistic fact for Paul. It was personal for Paul. Jesus' death was for me. Jesus takes my place on the cross. He died for my sin that I, I could be right with God. And Peter would have thought, wow, you're right, you know. I claim to have association with Jesus through all these wrong things. I have association with Jesus because he loved me through the cross. And that's just as that's true for the Apostle Paul, actually, just as true, just for Peter, it's true for you and me. If you accept what Jesus has done for you, you're justified by faith, not by your works. Paul's saying to Peter, Peter, you're loved, you're accepted, you're approved, you're, you're, you're appreciated. You're, you can find your identity in Christ and in his crucifixion. And tasting that love makes all other loves tasteless. That's kind of Peter's point. You know, how do you, how do you stay on track when there's all these other ways in which you can fill that heart bucket that you have to be filled? A, a Scottish minister 200 years ago, he said this in a very famous little passage He said the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He's saying our heart always has an appetite. We want love. Like Peter, we want love, we want approval. The only way to change it is to find a greater appetite, to find something more beautiful, more joyful than the old one. That's what Paul is saying when he says, Jesus loves me. He gave his life for me. He's filling up his heart with, with Christ. Uh, uh, just recently, you know this, my family has moved house, new location, moving to Kensington, a long way from here. We're going to miss you. Looking forward to seeing you in the person. And um, anyway, I've been picking up my son from daycare, his normal daycare, the last couple of weeks. And about three times he has said, every time we've got in the car, he said, this way, daddy. This way, Daddy. And it's always in the opposite direction to the way I'm going. I don't mind usually because I know, well, if I go this way or that way, I can get to our new place. Anyway, the third time he did it, he's crying. This way, Daddy. This way, Daddy. And it suddenly dawned on me. He wasn't being a bossy, picky toddler, you know, trying to give me directions to our, our new place. He wanted to go home. He wanted to go back to that place that he loved, that place he remembered, that place that filled him with With love and peace and joy, he wanted to go home. You see, when when Jesus is your home, it changes the way you live. What you love, you pursue, you go after. The question is, then, is Christ your home? Do you know his love for you personally? Because if you do, you will live in line with the good news. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, justifying us by faith and not by works, so that all of us can come to you. Lord, I just ask this truth would go so deep inside our hearts that we'd be so overcome by your love for us that we would respond to you in love and that our lives would be marked by walking straight walking in the direction of your love, showing that Christ is our true and better home, that Christ is our love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing together.